if you think about costs are rising exponentially and the income's rising incrementally, that's what's really driving. I mean, it's inevitable that we're going to have this and we already have this crisis. And you layer on top of that, like there's huge supply restrictions. Cities are slowing down on development because they're worried we're overdeveloping when in reality, like we're just not building enough housing. And because we're not building enough housing, that drives up the prices. That's why we're seeing all these crazy prices because more people are moving to urban areas. More people want to live closer to the jobs, but we're not building fast enough to match that need. Welcome to XN State. Where's the greatest opportunity in real estate today? That's what I need to know. We'll hear from industry leaders with boots in the ground and skin in the game. Who's winning? How are they winning? Stick around and we'll find out right here on XN State. Welcome back to XN State. This is your host, JCQ. Today we are hosting Evan Holiday, real estate developer and founder of Nashville-based Holiday Ventures. Evan and I met in a real estate conference a few months ago. I remember being taken aback by the passion in his voice as he explained to me the mission behind his company. Holiday Ventures focuses on the affordable housing niche of the multifamily sector with a mission to provide a home for families who would otherwise not be able to afford a quality place to live. Throughout his career, Evan has developed and invested over $225 million across over 1,300 multifamily units. In our interview, we talk about the factors that are driving the affordability crisis that we are seeing in the U.S. today, as well as what needs to be done to tackle this issue. We discuss Evan's journey of branching out on his own to found Holiday Ventures, something that he as a kid always knew he wanted to do. And we discuss the impact that COVID-19 has had on his projects and how he is reacting accordingly. I am certain that you will enjoy today's interview. Thank you for being back for another week of XN States. Here's today's guest, Evan Holiday. Good afternoon, Evan. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you doing? Great, man. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very excited to talk, talk development. I get very excited when we we're able to bring another developer on the show. Yes, I love, that's honestly, um, that's my passion. So I love talking about it. So happy to be here, man. Awesome. Why don't we start by hearing a little bit about your background and who you are and how you got into real estate and basically what's your story and what are you doing right now in real estate? (laughs) Yeah. So a little bit of my background. So I grew up in Cincinnati and really got into real estate in college, I was going down the pre-med route and I was like, man, I, I just don't enjoy chemistry. I don't enjoy science. I was like, what am I doing here? And that's when I saw this big development going in on campus. I went to University of Louisville in Kentucky mm-hmm. and I saw this big, big, big development, student housing, mixed use, um, what they had like retail, I think it was like $55 million, like 380 beds, big development. I was like, man, that's what I got to be. That's what I got to be doing. And I found the developer owner. I basically convinced him to give me a job. I was the first one they hired and learned kind of frontwards to backwards, like A to Z. I learned all about development from him. I was involved in the lease up. I was involved with like, you know, tenant relations. I was involved with, you know, really managing the property once it was built out too. And it just taught me so much. And so from there, I was like, all right, well, I figured out one thing. I don't want to be in management. I want to be the owner developer. I want to do what that guy's doing. And so that's when, at the same time, myself and four others, we actually started a modular development company in college. A uh, so modular? We, is that what you said? 
Yes, a modular development. What does that mean? So it means basically you're you're building components of a building off-site in a factory and you gain efficiency and, and hopefully time you know, gained by doing it off-site instead of on-site so you can get your building to market quicker and okay. hopefully even do it at a, at a better price point as well. Okay. So we took the same factories that were building houseboats. There's a bunch of those in Kentucky. And we turned those and said, okay, well, how can we use the same layout as a houseboat and build houses and multifamily housing instead of houseboats? Um, Because they had laid off like 1,100 skilled workers after the housing market crash in 08. So we were trying to figure out how to use those same factories, the same workers. And so we built some single family. And then afterward, we're looking for partners on the multifamily side. And that's when we found a group. And basically, I partnered with them for six years doing multifamily developments across the Southeast. And particularly, we were looking at workforce and affordable housing options mm-hmm. um, in growing metropolitan areas and doing mainly new development, ground up new development, and really just cut my teeth there. Learned so much, was able to do over a thousand units there. And just this last year, broke off, started my own group. We're called Holiday Ventures. And that's really what we specialize in is just having a passion and a mission around helping families that are looking for a quality place to call home, but Mm -hmm. can't necessarily afford that. And so we're trying to provide that opportunity at a reasonable price point. So that's, that's what I'm doing now is really based here in Nashville, but I'm working in workforce and affordable housing and doing what I, what I love every day. That's awesome. I'm intrigued by the what you were mentioning about the modular development. I that sounds to me as something I've seen in other parts of the world, like in China, but I haven't seen it here in the U.S. How did that work out for you? Yeah, just we we were looking at ways that we could be innovative and different, and maybe bring some some new ideas to the market. And so it, it really like it was kind of a crash course. We were actually did it as part of a class. It was an entrepreneurship class and we were basically, the professors were like, all right, you know, you need to start a company and it doesn't matter what it is, just start a company. And I was like, well, I'm obsessed with real estate, so I want to do something real estate. And so we, we found this modular, basically students and professors at another school, University of Kentucky, were already making these plans. And so we're like, hey, you guys are just doing this for a class. Like you're just basically designing all the plans. Can we have the rights to the plans? And we'll go out and turn this into a business and potentially be the provider in real life, like turn this into a real life application. And it it just kind of one thing led to another. And you just, you get curious, you know, you get that bug of curiosity and, and really wanting to make stuff happen. And, you know, we talked to builders, we talked to manufacturers, we talked to construction guys, you know, we basically just learned, you know, like, Hey, talk to me as if I'm two years old, like explain to me how this works and explain to me what are the benefits, you know, how can we best be most efficient in building it offsite? And so that's where we found out about this, you know, building it in houseboat manufacturing plants. We didn't have to reinvent the wheel. It's literally the same layout. It's a rectangular shape that you just replicate over and over again, almost like shipping containers. And so we were able to basically build that into single family and we're so gearing up single to family, multifamily. not or also multifamily. We were gearing up to do multifamily, and that's when the group 
approached me. I was trying to look for partners and they're like, uh -huh. Hey, how about you come work with us? Okay. And so the modular was shelved at that point, but it's definitely something that I want to bring back up and figure you still out. still your radar. Yeah. A hundred percent. It reminds me of the, like the tiny home movement, right? That's something that we're also seeing a lot. It's growing here in Texas, the, the tiny homes, there's, there's a couple communities towards Austin. Yeah. Um, I think the, the, there is it like 399 square feet. Yeah, exactly. For home. And I've been to, to a few of them. I, I toured a community once. Yeah. And you'd be impressed by how much stuff they can fit in, in one of those. So they're built very, very efficiently. But, but yeah, they do build them offsite and then transfer them to, to a different location. So I can certainly see where some efficiencies would be created there. So yeah, something yeah. interesting to have in the radar. Yeah, honestly, especially with like the, there was already a crisis of affordable housing and a need for affordable housing because mm -hmm. uh, construction prices are going up. There's not enough supply being put online for multifamily housing. And so that, you know, both of those things drives up demand. There's more people moving to urban areas. So you have all these things, all this, like all these different forces moving toward just making it harder and harder for working class families to actually afford something to rent. And then on top of that, you, you throw in COVID-19 and, you know, the, the whole like economic shutdown for the time being, and you add that onto it. And these families, like, these are a lot of families that live paycheck to paycheck already. And then you put them through the ringer of COVID-19 and then it's like, okay, now we really have an affordable housing crisis. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's going to be a lot of, a lot of energy momentum, hopefully, and a lot of a lot of like action towards how can we actually help these families and put them into good quality housing at a at a attainable price point. But the the affordable crisis is something that we've been hearing about for a while, right? Not yeah. just not just due to the current situation that that our country is going through with COVID nineteen and with the whole economic uncertainty, but this is something that particularly. Um, that you have been big on the affordability yeah. crisis and that you're, you've been trying to, to tackle with your, the companies that you've worked for and with currently with Holiday Ventures. So can you tell us a little bit about what that is, the affordability crisis that we hear about here and there? You, you, yeah. you, you touched on it briefly saying that construction prices have been going up, there's not enough multifamily supply coming online and more people are moving towards urban yeah. areas. But what are people doing to solve this issue or just give us a little bit more information on it? So that, yeah. yeah. So there, there was a great article actually written about a month ago that was published in The Atlantic. And I can share with you so you can share with your listeners. But it, it was called The Great Affordability Crisis. And, and the reason I bring that up is that this isn't just housing. It's everything. Every, everything that a family spends on income, if you think about their paycheck as 100%, and typically they're spending sometimes 50 to 60% on housing. So that leaves like, you know, 40 to 50% for healthcare, for food, for living expenses, for taking care of their kids, all the things that they need to do to run their family. Uh, they don't, they do it on less than half of their paycheck. And so that, that is providing the crisis in itself. And then you layer on top of that the fact that the cost of housing the cost of healthcare and the cost of education and just overall living expenses is all trending up significantly. 
And then on top of that, the actual, um, the income levels have been pretty stagnant. Like the income levels have barely risen at all. So, you know, just pure math, if you think about the, the costs are rising exponentially and the income's rising incrementally, that's what's really driving. I mean, it's inevitable that we're going to have this and we already have this crisis. And you layer on top of that, like there's huge supply restrictions. Cities are slowing down on development because they're worried we're overdeveloping when in reality, like we're just not building enough housing. And because we're not building enough housing, that drives up the prices. That's why we're seeing all these crazy prices because more people are moving to urban areas. More people want to live closer to the jobs, but we're not building fast enough to match that need. And so all of these, like all these forces are, are pushing down on these families that really they're, they're making almost the same amount they were 10 years ago. Um, and, it, you know, unfortunately, income levels aren't rising like everything else is. So there's certain things that are being done. There's certain, definitely certain cities that are being more innovative. I think Austin is a great example of a city that's like being proactive. And they've basically like, they've tried to invest a lot in affordable housing. Their housing authority has been active, like partnering with private developers. I think that's one thing like on the local level, there's tax abatements that are given out to developers. That's something that we've used a lot. It's called a pilot or a payment in lieu of tax. And that's a way where we basically, you know, your biggest, one of your biggest operating expenses are your, your real estate taxes, your ad valorem real estate taxes. And so if you can basically get that deferred or abated, you know, 50 to a hundred percent of your taxes abated, then you can underwrite that and get a much higher loan to help pay for construction. And then in turn, you, you have the ability to, to lower your rents that and on top of tax credits. Those are the two biggest ways that we're seeing right now. And then partnering with cities, counties, local governments. It's that public-private partnership that is going to make these things get done because unfortunately, there's no financial way to get these deals done without some form of public assistance. Mm -hmm. That would be one of the opportunities, I guess, that this crisis is creating, the being able to deliver a final product that's the same quality, but being able to develop it for cheaper yeah. right now, there's, I mean, there's a, a big need for something like that. So the solution to this affordable crisis is essentially to build more homes. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, at the, at the purest form, yes. Like it's purely a supply and demand thing. If, if we could allow, like if cities and, and really it boils down to like local communities, right? Like, if you're going to a planning meeting, if you're going to a rezoning meeting, if you're going to any sort of entitlement approval, it always comes down to the council member and the community um, will enable to allow for density, knowing that it has ramifications on their whole economy, then I think this could be a whole different thing. But that's, that's a big hindrance is local entitlements. And then the other thing is, uh, the other thing is also just the approval process. Like, I don't know what it's been like in your experience in Houston, but for us in Nashville, it can sometimes take like, we'll submit plans and it could take like eight to 12 months to get us permits. So it's just this, you know, you're stuck in the permit process and all that time, basically like construction costs keep rising mm -hmm. while we're sitting there like waiting for permits. So that's, that's another hindrance as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Austin is an, another city that is that is notorious for for being 
taking a long time yeah. to to give out permits. Houston, it normally isn't isn't that bad recently. Um, in the past few years, since there's been a tremendous amount of development, things have slowed down a little bit. In particular, after Hurricane Harvey, things slowed down uh, pretty significantly, and there yeah. were significant regulation changes that were put into place as well. It also really slowed down development in Houston. But traditionally, it's a uh, relatively it's on the easier side of getting getting things approved but even then it'll getting approvals will 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 still take a a couple months at least three or four months to get approvals so what has it been like uh, venturing out on on your own and starting holiday ventures (laughs) yeah that's a good question i think the biggest thing has been you don't know what you don't know i think you don't know anything or you don't know everything until you try something. And I think that's a great lesson for your listeners is that, you know, I, I, there were certain things that I could prepare for going out on my own. You know, this is really the first time I've ever been officially like 100% on my own. But there's there's definitely things that you just can't prepare for. And that's completely okay. You should never think about, you know, knowing 100% of something or having everything figured out before you dive off the deep end and and make a commitment and take action towards it. So I think for me, it was, you know, I, there was a lot of things I learned along the way. You know, you're, there's a lot of decisions that really ultimately come down to you and only you. And I think that's the biggest thing is you have to be, have that confidence or at least have that tribe of, of mentors and also mastermind groups like peers like that you can bounce ideas off of that really help you feel more confident in what you're doing. Another, the final thing I would say is having a coach in your corner is a huge value for anybody, especially those wanting to start their own company. Cause I had a coach in my corner and it was, it just gave me the headset, the mindset that I needed to be like, okay, I got this. I know this. I'm prepared for it. I'm going to make a timestamp of when I'm going to leave. I'm going to say, okay, this is the date and we're making it happen. And we end up like leaving. I, I left my company like three weeks ahead of that date. So it's just all those different things. I think it's, it's a whole lot more fun when doing it on your own. Yeah. And, but you, you, you definitely learn a lot as you do it. How did you know that? I mean, I guess you never know that you're ready, but how did you decide to take that that leap? You said you were you had been in your previous company for six years. Yep, is that right? Yeah, so I was there six years. I, you know, I think it just came down to a progression, right? Like it didn't just all of a sudden one day I was like, oh, you know, today's the day I'm going to do it. You know, it was just a progression of me saying, okay, I got more confident in my own skills, I got more confident in my network, my ability to close deals. The last three years I was working there, I was basically running my own division of the company and I was pretty, pretty autonomous. So I was doing, making 95% of the decisions. I was, you know, almost like running my own company. And so having that ability to say, okay, well, I have the, the mentors set up. I have, you know, the experience. I have the relationships. I have the capital partners already lined up. I think having that progression of saying like, okay, what are all the pieces I need of the puzzle to leave? Like what would make me feel confident enough, at least confident enough to leave and go out on my own and feel like I'm making a strong decision for myself and my family. And I think having that, having the mentor, having the capital, having the experience in all of those really giving me the confidence I needed to then set a date and work towards that date. But yeah, honestly, I, 
I knew I was going to do my own thing since I was, you know, a young kid. Like I, I always knew I, I was going to do my own thing. So I, I kind of went into it saying, Hey, let me gain as much experience as I can. And once I'm ready, then I'll do my own thing. Mm-hmm. I think, and I think you put it very clearly when you said you, you were already working in a role where you pretty much were very autonomous and you could see the whole process throughout from beginning to end. And you, you probably ask yourself, well, what, what's, how different is it going to be if I'm doing it out on my own, yeah. put, put the pieces of the puzzle together. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. And, and for your listeners, I would definitely say like, you know, you hear a lot of people say, you know, start your own company, start your own company. And I agree with that. But I also think if you have an opportunity to work for somebody that is the best of the best, you'll see a lot of times, like a lot of, of like the big, big names in real estate and finance right now, like they didn't start out on their own. Like day one, they didn't start out on their own. Some did, but you look about like Steven Schwarzman, founder, co-founder of Blackstone. He worked for many other groups. I think he didn't start Blackstone until he was like mid to late thirties. Yeah. And, and Barry Sternlich too. He didn't start, uh, shoot, I can't remember the name of his group. Anyways, he didn't start his group. He's got like multi-billion dollar real estate company. He didn't start it till his early thirties. He yeah. worked for other people, learned from the best of the best. And then it's, it's kind of like turning decades into days. I think that's a great quote of like, you can learn from somebody else's mistakes, their experience, and especially working for them because you're going to be, you know, hand in hand, foot in foot with them on deals. And that's literally the best way to learn is by trying to just soak up everything out of their head and into your head. Yeah, that's very, very true. A lot of times we try to rush into it, particularly if you're someone as was your case where you've always known that you eventually you have yeah. you, you're a kid and you have your your dreams of running your own company and being yeah. successful it, it may be a little bit harder to be patient if, if that's your case yeah but but you, but you put a, a great example with with a schwartzman founder of, of blackstone he didn't start he didn't branch off on his own until his late 30s and right now blackstone is the largest real estate company yeah. in, the, in the world so yeah. he still had enough time to yeah, grow his exactly. company into the largest company in the world but yeah a lot of times we would try to rush into things when the reality is that we have time and and that was a great point that you made is like it was it was hard to have that patience uh it really was like when i was there i was like all right i know i'm gonna leave i know i'm gonna leave like how much longer do i have to work here but i realized i was like the more deals i get done the more experience i gain the more relationships I gain, the more credibility I gain. And it just made that transition a whole lot easier. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's particularly tough in, to be an entrepreneur in real estate. We don't really hear a lot of real estate entrepreneurs. We hear entrepreneurship when we immediately think tech or those kinds of, of apps and those kinds of technologies. But real estate, probably because it's so capital intensive and because it requires usually using other people's money and to be able to raise capital people usually like to see somebody with yeah. experience with gray hair you hear people say as well so but i mean at the end of the day you took the right path that anybody who's starting their own company i mean you you were prepared at the end of the day yeah yeah so what projects is holiday ventures working on currently uh, good question. So we are we're working on a few different projects right now. We have four projects in the works in total, probably just over a thousand units. 
and we're working with different partners. It's mainly in the Southeast, mainly with public-private partnerships. We're working with local governments that understand the need for workforce and affordable housing. You know, we're doing urban projects, we're doing suburban projects, but it's mainly new construction. We do about 80% new construction, and then we do about 20% acquisitions. So we're also working on an acquisition right now up in Louisville. But yeah, we're blowing and going and working on getting some of these deals closed after um, after coronavirus moves and, you know, puts in its time and, and we can hopefully move forward as, you know, taking the next step on all of our projects and trying to make massive progress on them. For sure. You mentioned four projects in Southeast. What what cities are those in? Mainly, mainly Louisville, Nashville, and Huntsville, and then also looking at Atlanta. Okay. Is there a, a particular reason why you're in those markets? Yeah, I think... You know, I, I have people ask me and some of my coaching clients are always, you know, they're they're trying to figure out where are the best markets to be in. And really, for me, I think it comes down to a couple of different things. One, economic growth, job growth, family formation, where are the jobs moving? That's like, hands down, that's the biggest thing. And then also, in the particular niche of multifamily that we're in, we look for support, political support and financial capital allocated towards workforce and affordable housing. So those are big things. Those two things really are the biggest ones. And then making sure I mean, those mainly the, the other driver too, is that it's easy for us because we're in development where, as you know, it's very, can be hands-on on the front end of community meetings and, and, you know, job site visits and different things like that. Exactly. So, That's why I'm surprised that you have four projects and they're all in different cities. Yeah, because there's a big learning curve in terms of each city does things differently. I mean, I've only developed in Houston yeah. myself, but I know if I were to to go outside of Houston to develop, there would be a learning curve to that. Yeah, and that's a great point. I think the reason why we've been able to thrive in different cities is because we have connections and relationships in each of those cities. And that's partially why we pick those cities because okay. Huntsville, for example, like I didn't know anything about Huntsville until about eight months ago. And then I had a real estate investor who I'd had a relationship with previously. And he's like, hey, I, I have this potential opportunity for a deal here. Let's see how we can work together. I know Huntsville. I've done multiple development deals there, but I don't quite know the multifamily space. He's done mainly senior housing. Okay. And so that's an opportunity where I say, hey, I know this guy. I trust this guy. I'd be willing and would love to partner with him. He knows the market. I don't know the market. I know the asset class. I know how to get multifamily done. Uh, he doesn't know that. So that, that to me was like a no brainer of, of, it almost like gives me, you know, that decades into days, like I just gained his five years of relationships in Huntsville by partnering with him on that deal. So I think if you're looking at new markets, you don't necessarily have to partner with somebody, but at least figure out who are the key players, you know, do your homework, figure out who the key players are and, and you you know utilize that partnership with that person whether you hire them or partner with them because that time and again I've found like I went to Chattanooga for the first time and I I you know kind of talked to people called people met with people you know made my rounds learning everybody learning all the players in the city and then all of a sudden I find this attorney and he is like the gatekeeper for everybody in the city like he knows everybody he has good relationships with everybody so immediately I was like all right he's our attorney we're hiring him And after doing that, we got the property rezoned and, you know, he, he helped us move that project significantly more quickly 
than we could have on our own. And that's what happens when you hire and, and partner with the right people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you give us a brief high-level overview of the development process? Just what are the basic steps and where do you start? Yeah. So really, I can't remember all 10 of them, but, uh, but I, I had broken I this out. Um, I didn't know there were 10. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot, man. There's, there's too many. But basically, it just boils down to, you know, getting clear. First off, it's getting clear on what is your criteria, what kind of deal do you want to do, and where do you want to do it? Um, So that goes into picking the market like we talked about and then picking the asset class. You know, there's, there's so many different, like people say multifamily, but multifamily is like a hundred different types of multifamily. So you need to get very crystal clear on what type of deal you want to be doing and where do you want to be doing it? And then from there, it's, it's figuring out who the players are in that market. Like we were just talking about, find the brokers, find the political leaders, find the capital you know, the equity and the debt guys that know that market like the back of their hand, because they will help you make introductions. If they could be partners or play a role in a deal, then they would gladly help you make introductions and figure out and learn the market, understand the market, know where you need to be in that part of town. But that's the first part is criteria and then brokers, finding sites, you know, getting the negotiating, getting them under contract. From there, it's it's basically on, on what we do on the affordable side. It's negotiating for basically getting all the all the third party approvals and we work with the architects and engineers and get the plans done at the same time we're working with the city we're trying to get uh, tax abatements or tax credits we're basically trying to get their approval and support for affordable workforce housing because they're ultimately helping pay for the project because we can't financially do it without them so we're like, before we spend a bunch of money, we try to make sure we have their support, both financially and politically. Okay. So once we have their support, then that's when we kind of, we say we pour gasoline on the fire okay. and we say, okay, this is when we spend the, you know, quarter million to half million dollars in plans and specs. And so and before that, your- you spend on preliminary design, maybe conceptual drawings, things yeah. enough to be able to show city officials and explain what you want exactly. to do. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, we try to spend less than, you know, 20 to 30 grand before we have that answer. Okay. Um, and then you honestly, you never know a deal is going to close until it closes. But typically we know once we've spent that first 20, 30 grand, we're not going to spend any more until we have a clear answer or sign of support on finance. Like we're working on a project now where I think we spent like 10 grand on a refundable deposit. And a few thousand for a report, for a market study report. That's all we've spent so far. And we're going through the process of getting a tax abatement. And then once we get that tax abatement, we'll spend, you know, four to 500,000 on plans, architects, engineers, different things to go into the land. We may even buy the land at that point. So there's. So is the tax abatement, getting the tax abatement, a deal breaker for your projects? It depends on the project. There's many different ways to finance it. That's just one that I brought up. But there's home funds. Okay. There's CDBG funds. There's vouchers that you can get. There's different things, different tools, different financing sources you can use. But that's just particular to the affordable housing, to affordable housing developments. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that that basically allows us to to make it affordable. Okay. Um, But without that, I mean, we we also look at mixed income where we'll get a, a smaller pilot and in return we'll make just some of the units affordable and some market rate. Okay. 
but yeah, that, that's the biggest thing. That's like the biggest turning point for these deals. And then from there, it's getting your plans done and then submitting for permits. You get your permits, you get your debt people lined up, you get your equity people lined up. You basically negotiate with them, find the best debt and equity partners, go through due diligence with them, which takes anywhere from 90 days to six months, depending on who you partner with. And then you get to that closing table and that's when you know the, everything, all the funding's released and you start construction. It typically takes about 18 months at least to build out our communities. And then you have a year or more of lease up and then about three to six months for stabilization after that. So it's a long, it's a lengthy process. As yeah. you know, development is uh, it's not for the faint of heart or, or for those that are impatient. Yeah. And well, first of all, thanks for that overview. That was a fantastic overview. Extremely, yeah. extremely clear. And yes, yeah, as you mentioned earlier, you don't know what you don't know. And development is certainly full of surprises. Surprises yeah. are a part of, of the journey. Each project is different and each project is going to have things that come up that you would not have been able to anticipate at yeah, the start. That's exactly right. I, uh, and I would just recommend to your listeners, if you think about development, if you haven't done it before, just find somebody who's done it or find a mentor who's done it before. For sure. Um, because it's, it's a really unique. It's probably the, one of the hardest things to do in real estate. There's so many moving parts, but it's definitely easily doable just find the right partners and mentors. Yeah. You mentioned on it brief, you touched on on the current situation that we're going through on COVID-19. Is this affecting your projects in any way? Is this affecting your the projects that are in a certain stage more than projects that are in a different stage? Or what's the situation there? Yeah, it's interesting. So we were working on a pilot on that project I mentioned. And and uh, we we still had a pilot you know, meeting with the board that gives out the pilot. We did it yesterday over Zoom. And I thought that was amazing. I was like, this is so cool. We're actually like doing public meetings more or less online on Zoom. And so I thought that was cool that city's actually being adaptable to that change. But I will say like debt and equity are still, they're, they're slow to try to figure out what's going on here. So I, I think we'll know in a few more weeks, but like we talked about, I think long-term we're going to see significantly more demand for our product than ever before but i think like we're going through rezoning right now and we're trying to we're trying to figure out when we're going to do our community meeting because we can't meet in groups of more than 50 right now and so they won't let us do a community meeting so just trying to figure that out you know it's going to take a little bit long a few months longer than we anticipate but we're basically keeping our land sellers who we are under contract with keeping them in the loop and trying to see if we can get extensions there as well. But overall, I think we're going to come out okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you will. Are you also taking this as, a, as an opportunity to maybe take advantage of some opportunities that may arise in the market due to the turmoil that oh, yeah. people are in? Yeah, 100%, man. I, I recommend that to any of your listeners. Like, Use this as an opportunity to better yourself, better your company, find opportunities, find value. But I, how, how do you capitalize on, on a situation such as this? Or how are you looking to do so? Figure out where your capital is coming from. Find secure sources of capital that aren't wavering and aren't scared about the current situation. They, they know opportunity when they see it. I think having access to capital is important in times like down, you know, dips in the market because it's going to come back up. Sam Zell is a great example of his book, Am I Being Too Subtle? He talks about that, like the dips in the market and how to capitalize on that. 
but yeah, I think the biggest thing is having capital and just constantly being aware of the market and letting brokers know that you're looking for deals. And I think it's okay to be more aggressive in your terms. Like we put two offers on deals this week and both of them, we put terms in there that said, Hey, if our lender backs out because of COVID-19, then we're allowed to back out of the deal too and get all our deposits back. And that's not, you know, some, that's not something that you would normally propose. No, yeah, sell. we would normally not do that. And we would normally not expect to get that either. So we can be a little bit more aggressive, I think, because buyers have a little bit more leverage now because there's so much uncertainty. Granted, yeah. you may be taking a little bit more of a risk, but I think if you are a believer in the long-term market, then and if you're well capitalized, then then you'll do just fine. Mm-hmm. It's been a seller's market for a long time, and yeah. it may, that that may now be shifting. It may become a exactly. buyer's market. Quickly, Evan, I know you have to get going, but if you if you can give me a couple of minutes for a for yeah. the fire for a fire round, let's do just it. A, a few quick questions to get to know you a little bit better. First question: What's your favorite place to travel to? Costa Rica. I love it. Awesome. What's your your favorite book that we likely haven't heard of? I don't know. That's a really good one. I've honestly, I read about a book a week. So sometimes I, I forget the books that I, I are not readily in front of me. We can go with a, with the one you just mentioned with, am I being too subtle by Sam? So I, I, yeah. I haven't read that one, but it's, but it's on my list. Oh my gosh. I highly recommend that to anybody in real estate or finance. Phenomenal book. Next question. Favorite movie. Uh, favorite movie probably a throwback to The Great Escape. I'm going to have to look that up. <laughs> and a parting piece of advice for our audience. If you're thinking about something, if something really gets you excited and gets you pumped up and just like gives you that crazy weird feeling inside, like take action on that today because now is best time ever to be working on the things that get you excited. Even if it's just a few minutes a day, just take action and gain momentum and put in that work every day on things that get you excited. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that with us. And thanks for being here. Thanks for sharing your time with us. It's been amazing to have you here. And thanks for being an inspiration to us on the Monumental podcast. I encourage everybody to to check it out if, if they haven't already. Um, it's, it certainly was an inspiration for doing this podcast, but but yeah, it's been a, it's been a pleasure to have you, Evan. Good luck. Thank on, you, on the man. I really appreciate that. I really do. If your listeners want to listen in, uh, EvanHoliday.com, and then also on the investment side, it's HolidayVentures.com. Awesome. Thank you All for right having now. me, man. Thank you, Evan. It's been a pleasure. Likewise.